When it comes to legends of the automotive industry, it's hard to think of too many men who've been more important to contemporary history than Lee Iacocca. Lord only knows what would have happened to the automotive industry if he'd failed to secure a loan for Chrysler as we entered the 1980s, and one would think the American muscle car landscape might have been vastly different in the 1960s had he not managed to convince Henry Ford II to put the Mustang into production. This is without even getting into how Iacocca spearheaded the company's acquisition of AMC in 1987, which resulted in the Jeep brand becoming more prominent as the 80s rolled over into the 90s. I mean, do SUVs gain a foothold without the popularity of the Jeep Grand Cherokee and the minivans that preceded it? In a way, it all comes back to the K-Car. Even more than the Mustang or the Jeep acquisition, the K-Platform did more for the industry than just about any project Iacocca ever spearheaded, because it helped Chrysler get back on its feet as a big three automaker. Things were really touch and go in the early 80s for Chrysler, and if they had collapsed, the effect would have been catastrophic. Not only would Chrysler have gone down, they'd have been taking countless subsidiary companies down with them which would have done enormous damage to the economy, in addition to the insane number of jobs that would have been lost. The ripple effect could have led us into another Great Depression, to say nothing of the effect it might have had on car culture. It would have been bad times, whether you had skin in the automotive game or not. Now, this isn't to say that Lee Iacocca single-handedly saved us from a nation resembling Robocop's Detroit. I mean, you could probably do this type of cause and effect analysis with just about anything. But ultimately, the point of all this is to illustrate that Iacocca's contributions are an important facet of automotive history, even if you've never made contact with the K-Car yourself. We aren't going to go through every single little thing Iacocca did, but it should go without saying that he's a guy who did more good than I think he gets credit for these days. So sit back and enjoy as I spend the next hour tilling the soil of automotive history. This is the legend of Lee Iacocca. Lido Anthony Iacocca was born on October 15, 1924, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. His father, Nicola, emigrated to the United States from Italy near the turn of the century. Over the decades that followed his arrival in America, Nicola met and married Lee's mother, worked as a shoe cobbler, owned a movie theater, and was a restaurateur alongside his brother, who'd opened up a hot dog joint in the Lehigh Valley. The place was named the Orpheum Wiener House, which is a more ominous name, but probably less marketable long term. Either way, it was later changed to Yakos, after Nicola's brother Theodore heard his Pennsylvania Dutch customers struggle like hell to pronounce his last name. But that's not all, as Nicola Iacocca managed one of the very first car rental agencies in the United States, a quaint little place called You Drive It. The lot was mostly filled with Ford brand vehicles, so Lee developed a respect and understanding of automobiles from his father at an early age, in addition to a better understanding of finance. It was Nikola Iacocca who told Lee to never, ever allow yourself to fall into debt with anyone. No matter whom you borrow from, and no matter how much you borrow, you write yourself a note, you make a plan, and you make sure you pay your debt back. It was a matter of principle as much as a matter of credit. Anyone who knows the story knows how this tidbit comes back around, but for now, let's just say that Nicola was a savvy businessman, and a definite car guy in his own right. 
Yet it wasn't Nicola who introduced Lee to the automotive industry. Rather, it was a family friend by the name of Edward Charles, who had just so happened to open up a Ford dealership of his own. Lee could see that the auto business was about far more than engineering, that there was nuance to the retail side of things as well. It got Lee excited enough to consider a career in the automotive industry. But since he was every bit as ambitious as his father, Lee set his sights high and vowed that he would one day be the president of the Ford Motor Company. Everything he would do from that point onward would be towards the goal of earning a job at Ford and working his way up the ladder. Naturally, this sort of thing is easier said than done, but even if he fell short of the presidency, it was clear that Lee would at least have himself a decent career if he stuck with cars, since it was similarly clear that the auto industry would inevitably trend upward, as more households became capable of affording cars. Lee graduated from William Allen High School in 1942, having been rejected from military service during the Second World War due to a medical exemption stemming from his bout with rheumatic fever at age 15, which disqualified him from service altogether. But Lee did plenty with his time on the home front, earning his bachelor's in industrial engineering from Lehigh University in 1945, winning the Wallace Memorial Fellowship to Princeton University, and earning his master's in mechanical engineering shortly thereafter. During his time in school, Lee attended lectures by Albert Einstein, acquired a better understanding of the nuances of automotive engineering, and even completed his thesis and graduate project by hand-building a hydraulic dynamometer. By this point, Lee had already secured a promised place in Ford's engineering program in Dearborn, Michigan, but he wouldn't accept the position until he completed graduate school. However, he failed to get the promise in writing, and he nearly missed out on the program altogether after the Ford employee who'd offered him the spot was drafted into the military. The 50 spots for the training program had already been filled, so Lee phoned the employee's boss at Ford and explained his issue. Ultimately, the man made the compromise of allowing Lee to be the 51st candidate if he could make it to Dearborn before orientation. Lee made it just under the wire, and the rest is history, thanks in large part to Lee's unwillingness to just accept a rotten change in fortune. There's an anecdote in Iacocca's autobiography that relates how his father instilled in him the idea that a person must put everything into his work in order to succeed. I mean, it's not exactly a novel idea to teach this to your kid, but in Lee's case, it stuck pretty early on in life. In one passage, Lee relays the story of a surly waitress who waited on the family one night. They had been going out for a quaint little family dinner when her attitude basically put a damper on their entire night. So Nicola called the waitress over at the end of the meal and gave what Lee describes as his father's standard speech. I'm going to give you a real tip. Why are you so unhappy in this job? Is anyone forcing you to be a waitress? When you act surly, you're telling everybody you don't like what you're doing. We're out for a nice time and you're wrecking it. If you really want to be a waitress, then you should work at being the best damn waitress in the world. Otherwise, find yourself another line of work. It was a speech that Nicola would carry over to his own employees at Yakko's, who he'd fire for rudeness if they ever got snippy with a customer. Now, granted, today's employment climate is a bit different than it would have been in the 1940s, but the lesson still holds on the basis of one simple principle that Ayakoka took from all this. All the talent in the world doesn't excuse deliberate rudeness. And I know what you're thinking. What does rudeness have to do with anything? How did that help Ayakoka in his career at all? Well... 
as fate would have it, Lee would end up dealing with his fair share of nightmarish employees in the auto industry, Henry Ford II chief among them. But he had to be willing to compromise with people, even if he disagreed with them. He couldn't allow himself to devolve into meanness and cruelty. He couldn't allow himself to become surly or hold petty grudges. Hell, the one time he snapped and decided to hold a grudge, it resulted in a decision that nearly spelled the end for Chrysler. But more on that later. Needless to say... Lee Iacocca did well to practice what his father preached. In fact, it's not far off to say that Iacocca wouldn't have accomplished half of what he did without the principles instilled in him by his father, considering that Lee actually gave serious thought to quitting the car business altogether in the 1950s in order to pursue a career as a restaurateur, since he'd made serious bank on his first attempt, a cheesesteak place called The Four Chefs. There's some unnecessary humble bragging in the autobiography here about having virtually invented the concept of a fast food franchise, which I'm not entirely certain I'd buy, but the truth is that the four chefs ended up doing really solid business. In fact, it did so well that Lee ended up having to get rid of it because it moved him up to a higher tax bracket than he could really afford at the time. Granted, there are worse problems a person could have, but still... This was a life to which Lee could have easily returned if he really wanted to leave the auto industry in those first couple years. Lord knows he probably would have had less anxiety as a restaurant owner than he ended up having as an executive in the auto industry, but would he have been happy? Or would he have been plagued with the question of whether he gave up on his true calling? Ultimately, Lee decided to stick with cars, and, well, the story only gets larger from here. Iacocca toiled in engineering as the 40s rolled over into the 50s, but it didn't take him long to realize that he would be far more useful at the whole business side of the equation. He was transferred to the sales and marketing division, working at Ford's district marketing office in Chester, Pennsylvania, which was part of the Philadelphia district for Ford. It wasn't a place where Iacocca was intended to gain any sort of corporate exposure, and this somewhat dampened his plans to one day become president of the Ford Motor Company, since it's generally hard to get noticed when you're put in a place where you're not expected to make much of an impression at all. But Iacocca made the most of his situation by taking a page out of his father's playbook, instituting an interesting marketing gimmick in the form of the 56 for 56 campaign. Basically, Iacocca's district was dead last in the nation in sales, and he needed a way to move product, so he came up with the idea that anyone purchasing a new 1956 Ford would be able to do so for just 20% down and three years of $56 monthly payments. Iacocca believed that most Americans would be able to afford this, and he also figured they would be enticed by the prospect of owning a brand new car. Granted, this is about $504 a month in today's money, so I don't know how affordable this really would be, but in 1956, you bet your sweet ass that went over like free beer at a pretzel expo. In just three months, Iacocca's office went from last place to first, and he even earned the praise of Ford Division Vice President Robert McNamara, who would go on to the Ford presidency himself before serving in the Kennedy administration. The 56 for 56 campaign became part of Ford's national marketing strategy, and it made Iacocca an overnight sensation, earning him a promotion to district manager of Washington, D.C. 
By 1960, he was head of car marketing altogether. And yes, this is glazing over the decade of toil that Iacocca spent trying to get noticed at Ford as an engineer and later as a marketing whiz, but it's really not an exaggeration to say that he had a rocket strapped to his career after the 56 for 56 idea took off, as the plan ended up moving an extra 75,000 cars over the lifetime of the campaign. It was the type of stunt promotion that Lee had learned from his father who would regularly do promotions at his movie theaters, such as the 10 kids with the dirtiest faces get in free. No, seriously, that was one of the promotions for a Saturday matinee. And hey, I know I'd throw some crap on my face if it meant I could get into the next fist punch movie for free. And yet, despite the surprising success of the 56 for 56 campaign, Ford suffered a 27% sales hit due to what experts claimed was McNamara's lack of marketing savvy. You see, McNamara had this obsession with filling all of Ford's marketing materials with facts highlighting the safety features of their cars, on the principle that function and safety are ultimately more appealing to a consumer than form and price point. But these were the days when mainstream car culture as we know it would start to take off. With the increase in car ownership among Americans came the interest in cars beyond their workaday function. Cars were becoming a hobby every bit as much as an appliance. In short, people really didn't care if a car was safe or not. They just wanted it to go fast, look cool, and make their neighbors envious. It was a style over substance situation in the U.S., for the most part. And sure, that kind of thinking resulted in Iacocca giving us disasters like the Ford Pinto, a monster of a car that injured Iacocca's image as this infallible automotive mastermind, between its safety hazard reputation and a rush job production that smacked of desperation to cut into the smaller Japanese import scene. But, on the other hand, we also got the Mustang out of all this, which did for performance cars what Louis Armstrong did for jazz. It rounded off the edges and made it safe to be handled by your parents while still retaining enthusiast credibility. In short work, Iacocca went from a marketing whiz to one of the top executives at the company, particularly once he got the Mustang up and running. For that 10-year stretch from 1956 to 1966, everything was coming up Iacocca, and his star would only rise from there. He ascended to the vice presidency of the Car and Truck Group in 1965, and the executive vice presidency of the company in 1967, before finally realizing his dream on December 10, 1970, when Lee Iacocca became the president of Ford. He'd done it. He'd stuck with the auto industry and was rewarded for his diligence. With a pain-in-the-ass job working alongside one of the most cantankerous men in the history of American automotives. Yes, Henry Ford II was pretty much renowned as a notoriously difficult man who was determined to make $5 his way rather than 500 somebody else's. Most of this comes from Iacocca's autobiography, as he attempted to explain why Ford II was such a fearful megalomaniac. Basically, Ford II had been protected for virtually his entire life by his grandfather, Henry Ford I, because there was a widespread concern over kidnappings. They pretty much feared a second Lindbergh baby situation, with Ford II getting snatched, a ransom being demanded, and the heir to the empire getting killed anyway. Of course, what happened to the Lindbergh baby was tragic and unspeakable in its own right, so I can't exactly blame Ford for being cautious, but by sheltering his grandson as much as he did, he conferred upon the boy a certain sense of inflated importance. Yeah, he would be the future heir to the Ford Motor Company, but he still had to answer to the common man by appealing to them first, and his own self-interest second. 
However, Henry Ford II would often fail to recognize that his self-interest could be served through serving his constituency. It was an ego thing, but it was also a problem with learned paranoia. I mean, for crying out loud, the real twist in all this is that Ford II ended up turning on his grandfather in 1946, ousting the very man who had paid so much to protect him all those years. Now, granted, in fairness to Henry Ford II, the ouster was motivated by Henry Ford's mental deterioration following a series of strokes. And it wasn't even led by Henry Ford II, but by his mother, who'd lost her husband, Edsel Ford, three years earlier to stomach cancer. But the fact remains that the overprotectedness of his upbringing had imbued Henry Ford II with a paranoia that would come to define his later life. For instance, Ford II would flip out any time he saw two of his executives talking, demanding to know the nature of their conversation for fear that they were trying to oust him too. The funny part in all this is that subsequent rumors in the following decades would allege that Iacocca was legitimately planning to oust Henry Ford II at the height of their tensions. Now, I don't know if Iacocca would have succeeded, but it would be interesting to think of the changes to the American auto industry had Iacocca never gone to Chrysler. Either way, Ford and Iacocca clashed over countless business decisions, such as the Minimax project, which he developed with Ford Vice President Hal Spurlick. Somehow, Ford II didn't see the minivan as a vehicle that would ever catch on, so he essentially put the kibosh on it. Later, when Iacocca attempted to negotiate with Honda in order to use their motorbike engines in a prototype, high-fuel-efficiency car, Ford II declared that no car with my name on the hood is going to have a Jap engine inside. Ford saw any positive press for Iacocca as an outright threat. This is to say nothing of how poorly the two men got on, as their personalities were starkly contrasted. While he might not have always been a warm-hearted boss, Iacocca was at least fair and would listen to employees. He also genuinely cared about the well-being of the people in his employ, down to the lowest-level factory worker. But Henry Ford II was an insular man, prone to suspicion and myopic self-interest. Ford fired Iacocca on July 13, 1978, despite the fact that executives and shareholders didn't really want him to leave, what with his successes on the Mustang, the Fiesta, and the Mark III. Sure, the Pinto was a bomb, in more ways than one, but the positives outweighed the negatives in Iacocca's run. But Ford II didn't really care, even though the company posted $2 billion in revenue for 1978. As Ford would later declare, after being asked why he fired Iacocca, Sometimes you don't like someone. Ultimately, with his decision, Henry Ford II had handed a gift-wrapped package to his competitors, namely Chrysler. You see, at the time Iacocca was let go by Ford, the Chrysler Corporation was in freefall, hemorrhaging money due to the poor decisions they'd made over the years, such as refusing to give up on gas guzzlers at a time where two separate Arab oil boycotts had led to skyrocketing gas prices. Granted, this wouldn't have been as disastrous had their cars been selling. Hell, Hummers apparently still sell, for some reason. But Chrysler just didn't have cars that excited anyone. In a general sense, Chrysler's vehicles were considered some of the worst on the road at the time, from a build quality standpoint, as evidenced by the recalls of first-run cars like the Plymouth Volare and Dodge Aspen. So Iacocca joined Chrysler on the premise that he would help restructure the company from the ground up in a way that he hoped would help turn things around, if not immediately, then in the long term. Because at this point, it didn't seem as though Chrysler had much of a long term to look forward to, between all the layoffs and factory closings and the aforementioned hemorrhaging money. 
Not only would Iacocca bring in some former associates at Ford, he would also carry over the Minimax project. He also sold off Chrysler Europe to Peugeot and diverted funds to further promote the subcompact Dodge Omni and Plymouth Horizon, which had become surprise successes just prior to Iacocca's hiring as CEO. This was good enough to stave off the closing of the company altogether, but it wasn't a long-term fix, so Iacocca went to the U.S. government for help. It wasn't ideal, of course, but for now, it was pretty much the only solution. And yet, as Lee was about to find out, the government really wasn't going to make this easy for him. When Iacocca was brought before Congress to plead his case, he discovered a system that had already made up its mind against meeting him halfway. They resented his claims of excessive regulation, even though the argument from Iacocca's end was that this entire mess was at least half the government's fault. Sure, Chrysler had any number of errors in judgment, like pushing out the Aspen and Velare before they were ready, and mismanaging finances to a catastrophic degree. But this didn't mean that the government's excessive regulatory provisions in the 1970s didn't play some part in what happened, at least in Iacocca's mind, especially given how much those regulations cost over the years. In his argument, to the government, Iacocca would also draw parallels between Chrysler's situation and that of previously bailed out corporations Lockheed Martin and Consolidated Rail, the latter of which had also lost money hand over fist due to government regulations in the early 70s. On October 18, 1979, Iacocca formally made his case to the House Subcommittee on Economic Stabilization of the Committee on Banking, Finance, and Urban Affairs. Instead of butting heads over the regulations, Iacocca instead appealed to their sense of fiscal responsibility. I am sure that you know I do not speak alone here today. I speak for the hundreds of thousands of people whose livelihood depends on Chrysler remaining in business. It is that simple. Our 140,000 employees and their dependents, our 4,700 dealers and their 150,000 employees who sell and service our products, our 19,000 suppliers and the 250,000 people on their payrolls. And of course, the families and dependents of all those constituents. Of course, the bigwigs were confused about just what kind of help Iacocca was looking for, interpreting his speech as a plea for a handout. Iacocca made certain to specify that he wasn't looking for charity. He was looking for an opportunity to amend the mistakes that brought Chrysler to this point. He also made it clear that every last dollar of the loan would be repaid with interest. Still, the government needed more to go off of, specifically just why Chrysler needed the help in the first place and why they deserved it at all. For Iacocca, it all came down to seven key points. For one, Chrysler's issues were the result of an unfortunate combination of lousy management, a recession that came at pretty much the worst possible time, and the usual one-two punch of oil and energy crises, along with the aforementioned government regulations. For Chrysler, only the management issues were within their control, and the problem had already been rectified for the most part. The implication is that, with the second chance, Chrysler would perform beyond even the most generous expectations. Secondly, Iacocca argued that Chrysler was already in the process of turning things around by reducing fixed costs by over $500 million per year, selling off assets, and reducing executive salaries. Third, it was argued that Chrysler's profit margins on subcompact cars weren't enough to keep the company in business alone, and they were running out of the necessary money to keep their full line of cars and light trucks in production. Fourth, 
Chrysler wasn't in a position to survive a bankruptcy. Not only were American jobs on the line, the health of the American economy itself was at stake. Fifth, there were no merge offers on the table from any other automotive manufacturer, meaning loan guarantees were pretty much the last resort for the company. Sixth, Iacocca argued that Chrysler actually had the best average fuel economy of the big three automakers, and that the future of fuel economy was through them. And finally, Iacocca believed Chrysler's five-year plan was certain to work, with the idea of improving market share and returning to profitability before 1985. Now, naturally, Iacocca had an opponent in the form of Banking Committee Chairman William Proxmire, who had previously voted to give American Motors a federal tax credit, resulting in a $22 million cash rebate for the company in 1967. In 1974, American Motors would be declared a small business by the federal government, which showed further favoritism. And in 1977, they would be granted a two-year waiver on emission standards for nitrogen oxides. Basically, the government was naked in its preferential treatment towards American Motors, and Iacocca really wasn't happy about this. Although he'd been elected to the Senate on a platform condemning reckless government spending, Proxmire was one of the key figures in providing aid to American Motors, which just so happened to have a major assembly plant in Proxmire's home state of Wisconsin. So Iacocca called him out on it when Proxmire called into question Iacocca's reasons for asking for a bailout in the first place. I remember you were the prime mover for loan guarantees for American Motors, and they're owned by the French, so you were aiding and abetting the French government. Now, in a general sense, it's not wise to accuse a guy of treason when he's one of the people deciding on the fate of your company. But, as Iacocca would later explain in his autobiography, he was fed up with trying to be polite to these people, since they apparently had their mindset against him from the get-go. So he went for the jugular, and Proxmire struck back, stating that by getting the government involved in Chrysler's day-to-day -day operations, Iacocca was a hypocrite as well, since he was the poster child for anti-government interference. But Iacocca steered into the skid and admitted that, yeah, it did fly in the face of his ideology. I have been a free enterpriser all my life. I come here with great reluctance. I am between a rock and a hard place. I cannot save the company without some kind of guarantee from the federal government. I am not going to preach to you. You gentlemen already know this better than I do, that we are setting no precedent. There are already $409 billion of loan guarantees on the books, so don't stop now, men. Go to $410 billion for Chrysler, because it is the 10th biggest company in the U.S., and there are 600,000 jobs involved here. Iacocca had argued his case, but it seemed evident that he wasn't going to have the votes necessary to secure the loan guarantees. So Iacocca had to rely on his team at Chrysler to mobilize efforts to get the government on their side. To this end, Chrysler enacted a dealer lobby in Washington, complete with printouts delivered to each U.S. representative illustrating the consequences to their district if Chrysler were to go out of business. Out of 535 districts, only two lacked any sort of Chrysler dealer or affiliate. Virtually everyone would have been affected. Elected officials would have been taking a huge gamble with their positions if they allowed Chrysler to go under. In this instance, it became as much a matter of remaining re-electable as it was a matter of fiscal responsibility. Oh, and I suppose it was also a matter of doing right by the constituency. 
But regardless of the motivation, the government was gradually won over by Chrysler's tactics. Now, Iacocca had to put the government's money where his mouth was and start cranking out Chrysler Sabres. The pressure was at an all-time high, and I suppose you could insert some sort of platitude about how pressure makes diamonds, or how when the going gets tough, the tough get fiber and then get going, but the long and short of it is that Chrysler was only going to have one shot to get this right. Luckily, Iacocca and his team already had something in mind. Once laid out, Iacocca's proposal asked for $1.5 billion in federally guaranteed loans, which would give Iacocca roughly two years to get things back on track. In return, the government wanted a complete three-year business plan that would explain, in excruciating detail, just how Iacocca was going to turn the company around. Particularly, they wanted to know what kinds of cost-cutting measures he was going to make, and what new products he'd intend on putting into production. In addition, the government took Chrysler's assets as collateral, and ordered the company to produce millions in stock warrants to the government, so they could get rich in the event that Chrysler did the impossible. So what big idea did Iacocca and his team have that would get Chrysler out of the red? Say hello to the K-Car. With the Chrysler K-Platform, the idea was to marry a traditional front-wheel drive layout with solid beam rear axles and torque-weighted engines. It was initially derived from the L-Platform used for the Dodge Omni and Plymouth Horizon, as part of the plan to take the company away from your standard solid-axle rear-wheel drive setup. In this instance, Chrysler offered a front-wheel drive layout, four-cylinder engine, a manual transmission that could get from 0 to 60 in 10 seconds, a throttle that gave automatic transmissions a little more power than nothing at all, and fuel economy that rated at 26 miles per gallon city and 41 miles per gallon highway on a 14 gallon fuel tank, which made it the highest mileage six passenger car in America. The steering was fairly light with accessible handling for auto enthusiasts and everyday drivers alike. The boxier shape of the K cars also offered an American take on Japanese styling, but bigger in accordance with American exceptionalism and all that literary subtext. Although time was of the essence, Iacocca had learned his lesson from the Pinto production rush job, which was one of his biggest failures back at Ford. In preparing the K-Car for release, Iacocca made certain he had the right team in place. In addition to former Ford VP Hal Spurlick, Iacocca brought in Don De La Rosa to serve as VP of Design, Dave Platt to act as VP of Purchasing, Dick Liesia to serve as President of Creative Industries, Hank Carlini to make arrangements with Creative Industries on the production of prototype Woody K cars, and Dick Rossio as Executive Engineer for Body Electrical. This is in addition to more than 25 other men, including future Chrysler Vice Chairman Jerry Greenwald and ex-Ford colleague Paul Bergmoser, who would later become Chrysler president himself. It was a pretty arduous process getting the K-Car off the ground, even with Iacocca's hand-picked team in place. In its entirety, the project cost roughly $1 billion over a three-year period, and for good reason. Engineers spent more than 320 hours testing the platform in wind tunnels, and using the data to implement further weight-reducing measures, with the intent on reducing drag and overall wind resistance in an attempt to increase highway mileage. Metal parts on the interior and exterior were replaced with comparable plastic components, and electric fans became standard, among other implementations. Iacocca also focused on having engineers develop more interchangeable parts among the fleet, a plan that would allow healthier profit margins for the K-Car. The entire thesis of the K-Platform was modern engineering made simple. The initial K-Car lineup featured three model options, a two-door sedan, a four-door sedan, and a station wagon. 
Engine options included Chrysler's 2.2-liter four-cylinder and a 2.6-liter four-cylinder from Mitsubishi. There was a certain elegance to the straightforward nature of the K-Platform's design that made it attractive to the average consumer. Fast forward to 1981, when the first K cars, the Plymouth Reliant and the Dodge Aries, rolled off the line. With Chrysler's livelihood at stake, the company couldn't afford anything less than an enthusiastic reaction. Luckily, that's more or less what they got. Motor Trend magazine named both the Aries and the Reliant Car of the Year, and combined sales figures numbered nearly $1 million, with 307,418 units sold in 1981 alone. If anything, the K-Car was too popular in its first year, as the allure of a mid-sized sedan starting at the price of under $6,000 resulted in demand outstripping supply. It took the Newark, Detroit, and Toluca, Mexico plants to get the K-Car back on track and keep product rolling off the factory lines at a level commensurate with demand. The K-Car line was able to sell roughly 280,000 units a year combined, with a 360,000 unit peak over the decade the K-Car fleet was in production. And just like that, a decade that had been shaping up to be a disaster for Chrysler was suddenly on track to becoming one of its most profitable. And the K-Car was only just getting started. The K-Car was now a bona fide success, and it allowed Chrysler to begin building the momentum necessary to repair their reputation. While the Ares and the Reliant were low-cost family vehicles that appealed to the middle-class wage earner, Iacocca had his sights set on presenting a more refined model that would help lift Chrysler in the public eye. To this end, we got the Dodge 400 and the Chrysler LeBaron, two cars intended to be upscale versions of the K-Cars that had debuted the year previous. The 400 was available as a two-door coupe, four-door sedan, and a convertible, making this Dodge's first convertible since the 1971 Dodge Challenger and the first available domestically since Cadillac put the Eldorado out to pasture. Meanwhile, the LeBaron was a resurrected nameplate intended to evoke its 1930s luxury car cachet. Initially available solely as a coupe or sedan, Chrysler eventually added a convertible model to the lineup, in addition to the station wagon town and country model. The 82 LeBaron was Chrysler's lowest-priced upscale model, and it was a pretty smart move on the company's part. Sure, they were trying to appeal to a wealthier clientele, but it doesn't exactly hurt to make luxury accessible to the common man, too, considering they'd been Chrysler's bread and butter for the better part of the 20th century. I don't think anyone really cared that it was little more than an upmarket Plymouth. It also helped that the LeBaron had significant stylistic differences from the common K-Car, in order to appeal to those who might not necessarily have thought the Ares or the Reliant were the most attractive models in the world. For instance, the LeBaron had more chrome, fancier wheel covers, quad headlights, and a waterfall grille. The front was also a bit curvier and less rigid in its lines. The fact that the LeBaron was the only K-Car to receive the option of a 2.2 turbo engine only added to its rebate bourgeois mystique. And from a style standpoint, it really can't be overstated how much the convertible option added to the appeal of these cars. When American automakers stopped filling that market, Americans just turned to European manufacturers to satisfy their needs. It was a niche market, sure, but the market was still there for convertibles, so it made sense for Chrysler to reach out to that consumer base. By the time the LeBaron convertible hit the market, it was every bit as big a hit as Chrysler had hoped, even though the faux wood paneling of the town and country station wagon seemed destined to look dated within the decade. But who cares? Wood trim just screamed nostalgia, at a time where Americans were turning away from an uncertain future by looking to a romanticized past. In short, 1982 was yet another solid year for Chrysler, with the company finally rediscovering what it felt like to turn a profit.
The overwhelming success of the 1982 models paved the way for the E-Car, which essentially expanded the K-Platform by offering roomier interiors and hungrier engine options, such as the turbocharged 2.2 and a 2.5 that replaced the flawed Mitsubishi 2.6, which had been proven to suffer from oil leaks. The Chrysler E-Class, the Dodge 600, and the New Yorker were mid-sized cars that drove like full-size sedans, and at a competitive price. And it all goes back to the versatility of the K-Platform, as Chrysler was able to mold its lineup in accordance with the tastes of its consumers. The interchangeable nature of the platform's components meant that production and purchasing costs were down across the board. Yeah, the K-Platform cost a billion dollars to develop, but once it was up and running, they were operating at a cost of just $50 million to bring the LeBaron and Dodge 400 to market. That's an insane turnaround! Iacocca also took part in helping to promote the K-Car himself, appearing on television in commercials where he'd make his famous pitch, If you can find a better car, buy it. All of the marketing and engineering savvy culminated in Chrysler experiencing its biggest breakthrough in the fall of 1983, with the release of the Dodge Caravan and the Plymouth Voyager, two vehicles that would essentially give birth to the minivan craze that would sweep America in the 1980s. It all goes back to Iacocca and Hal Spurlick's Ford Minimax plan that Henry Ford II had passed on. With his team in place at Chrysler, Iacocca was finally able to enact his plan to build a minivan off of the K-Platform, delivering a roomy, boxy vehicle with seven-passenger seating and engine options that included the standard 2.2-liter straight-four and the 2.6-liter Mitsubishi Astron engine, which made 104 horsepower and 142 pound-feet of torque. While not exactly sexy vehicles, they appealed to the same segment of consumers that made the station wagon popular, offering Americans a more comfortable way to transfer their family from point A to point B. It's kind of strange if you think about it, because this was before the minivan came to represent what the New York Times would go on to call a symbol of the soul-crushing conformity that was the price paid for suburban comfort. With these minivans, you had cars that were essentially marketed on their lack of cosmetic opulence. It was the ultimate substance over style argument, since no one really cared what these minivans looked like. In their first model year, the K-Platform minivan sold over 200,000 units. With the strength of the K-Car sales, coupled with the explosion in popularity for the minivan, Chrysler was able to repay the government back loans seven years early, paying off the loan in the fall of 1983. This had the net result of earning the U.S. government a $350 million profit. In keeping true to his father's teachings, Iacocca would pay back every red cent the government loaned him, with interest. The K-Car was firmly entrenched in the American zeitgeist, and it would remain in that position until the K-Car was quietly phased out in the mid-90s with the rise of the SUV. But regardless, history would remember that, on the back of the K-Platform, Chrysler had been saved. Well, for a time, at least. With the K-Car doing the lion's share of pulling Chrysler back into profitability, Iacocca began to wind down his career in the auto industry, but not before making some big moves. For one, he was key to Chrysler's acquisition of American Motors in 1987, which was part of a play to bring the Jeep brand into the Chrysler fold. It was a smart move considering this was around the time Jeep was preparing to debut the Grand Cherokee, which would go on to become one of the most significant automotive successes of the 1990s. Of course, it's unlikely that Iacocca could predict just how necessary the Jeep acquisition would end up being, since he had no way of knowing just what kind of hell Chrysler would be in for in the decade to come. Granted, you can make the argument that he probably should have. You see, 
early into the 90s, Iacocca made what was perhaps his biggest mistake. Basically, it was a single decision that would set Chrysler on a course that would put them right back in the hole they worked so hard to dig themselves out of. That decision, of course, was Iacocca's choice as his successor. And it was a mistake because it was a choice made on emotion rather than logic. Let me explain. Pretty much, when a company is as successful as Chrysler was in the 1980s, the people responsible tend to get poached by other companies in the hopes that these executives will be able to duplicate the success for their company. In 1990, Chrysler treasurer Frederick W. Zuckerman announced he would depart from the company. Several weeks later, international operations head Michael N. Homs resigned to become president of Black & Decker, and K-Car point man Jerry Greenwald left Chrysler to become chief executive and owner of United Airlines. There was a lot of corporate uncertainty at the top levels, and this was exacerbated somewhat by Iacocca's retirement in 1992, and the subsequent announcement of his replacement. I get into it a bit more in the RCR Stories episode centering on the Daimler-Chrysler merger, but basically the gist is this. Iacocca had two choices as to who would get the nod as the next chairman of Chrysler. Robert Lutz seemed like the de facto pick, since he was already head of global product development at Chrysler, and had a reputation that preceded him as executive vice president of Ford. But there was just one problem. Iacocca and Lutz absolutely hated one another. Perhaps it was a case of two automotive intellects butting heads, or maybe it was simply two egos refusing to budge. In the words of Lutz himself, Iacocca saw him as far too ambitious, volatile, unpredictable, undiplomatic, and emotional, whereas Lutz viewed Iacocca as mercurial, inconsistent, controversial, a little insecure, and given to posturing and bluster. Although Iacocca did consider Lutz for the position, owing to the respect he had for him as a businessman, he just couldn't get over the grudge, so he went with Bob Eaton, the man who'd headed up General Motors' European division. While it would have made far more sense to promote from within, Iacocca felt his choice was sound at the time, since Eaton seemed like a guy who knew what he was doing. But it wasn't that simple. Basically, Eaton didn't believe that Chrysler was a company that could survive on its own. In his view, they were simply too small. How he came to this decision when Chrysler's sales were reaching into the billions in the 90s is anyone's guess, but it wouldn't be long before Chrysler would partner with Daimler-Benz AG. And again, to keep this video from lasting for the rest of the year, just check out the RCR stories on the Daimler-Chrysler merger to see just how badly that would go for Chrysler. Needless to say, Eaton made the wrong move, and more tellingly, he made a move that Lutz likely wouldn't have made himself had he been named Iacocca's successor. Lutz believed Chrysler needed to remain an independent company, and it's hard to imagine this wouldn't have worked out better for them in the long run since the Daimler-Chrysler merger was a situation where Chrysler appeared to be assuming all the risk without any real tangible benefit. But Iacocca allowed emotions to get the better of him. Years later, he would openly declare that choosing Eaton over Lutz would be his biggest mistake. And you know, maybe he should have chosen Lutz. But at the end of the day, it's up to the people who take over to fully realize their vision for the company. Maybe Eaton didn't take Chrysler in the direction Iacocca would have taken it, but there's only so much that any one man can do. On the subject of the Daimler-Chrysler merger, Iacocca would later clarify one of the more interesting legends about the pre-merger plot to wrest the company away from Eaton. 
Essentially, when shareholder Kurt Kerkorian came to Iacocca in 1995 with the idea of a buyout, Iacocca said he would support him, but it was contingent upon Kerkorian both raising the necessary funds for the buyout and also agreeing to give 5% of the company to management and 20% to the workers. This would give the workers a vested interest in the future of the company, and it would also protect them in a manner of speaking, since a market cap of $24 billion meant their stake would eventually grow to be worth $6 billion in total. But because everything was handled by Tracinda, Kerkorian's private investment firm, no one appeared to have any idea just how to handle the business end of things for a car company, since these really weren't car people. So the plan fell through, and Iacocca essentially faded into that good night. Of course, there's an old myth that Iacocca was thrown out of Chrysler kicking and screaming, and that he tried to return in 1995. While you could argue that the return in 1995 had some merit to it, considering the attempted Kerkorian buyout that year, there isn't really any veracity to the notion that he was thrown out of Chrysler in 1992. As Iacocca would later say in a 1996 interview for Fortune magazine, he told the board that he would stay with the company until he was 68 then remain on board as chairman until he turns 70. When I'm chairman, you give me half the pay under my contract. I'll be an active, working chairman, but I don't want to be CEO. It was less about being sick of the automotive industry and more about simply wanting to enjoy his autumn years. As he would state in the interview, he had all sorts of employment offers during the tail end of his time at Chrysler, from an offer to be president of Harvard to an offer from Pennsylvania Governor Robert Casey to fill the vacant senatorial seat left after the tragic death of Senator John Hines in a 1991 plane crash. And hey, he even briefly considered taking meetings for the position of commissioner of baseball. But he passed on all of that for Chrysler, in the face of an increasingly difficult working environment. Because the automotive industry was the choice he'd made. It was the choice he'd always made, whether faced with the prospect of a presidential run or being offered control of any number of companies. For better or worse, Iacocca had held fast to his father's teachings and saw things through. And yet, even when you finish what you start, it doesn't necessarily mean that it ends with you. Eventually, Iacocca got to a point where he simply wanted to leave and spend the rest of his days in the California sun with his family. So that's what he did. And for the most part, people didn't really see or hear much from Iacocca until the mid-2000s, when he came back to Chrysler in 2005, just 10 years after the attempted hostile takeover with Kerkorian. This was in order to help pitch the ad campaign for Chrysler's Employee Pricing Plus program. He would also write a successful book in 2007 titled Where Have All the Leaders Gone, which detailed his brief flirtation with a political career and his theories on leadership. He would even offer his views on the current state of the auto industry over the years. In a 2009 Newsweek interview, he reflected on the bankruptcy Chrysler faced upon exiting the Daimler-Chrysler merger, stating, It pains me to see my old company, which has meant so much to America, on the ropes. But Chrysler has been in trouble before, and we got through it. And I believe they can do it again. If they're smart, they'll bring together a consortium of workers, plant managers, and dealers to come up with real solutions. These are the folks on the front lines, and they're the key to survival. Let's face it, if your car breaks down, you're not going to take it to the White House to get fixed. But if your company breaks down, you've got to go to the experts on the ground, not the bureaucrats. Every day I talk to dealers and managers who are passionate and full of ideas. No one wants Chrysler to survive more than they do. So I'd say to the Obama administration, don't leave them out. Put their passion and ideas to work. 
That same year, Iacocca would be named the 18th greatest CEO in American history by CNBC's portfolio. This was a pretty crazy year already anyway, since Chrysler had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. However, in an unfortunate twist, because of the bankruptcy, Iacocca risked losing part of his pension along with his executive retirement package and his guaranteed lifetime company car. But it's hard to imagine this would have phased Iacocca, who has enjoyed a well-earned retirement in Bel Air, having accomplished perhaps more than even his boyhood ambitions could have foreseen. All in all, Iacocca hasn't exactly had a bad run. I mean, he worked his way from engineering to sales, all the way to the presidency of a company he loved and admired since boyhood. And that would be enough for any one man to accomplish, but the notion that he then went on to become CEO of a rival company and helped mobilize the forces that would save one of the big three automakers in the early 1980s is something else entirely. I know this entire bit probably borders on deification, but I really do believe that Lee Iacocca is one of the most important figures in automotive history. I'm not doing this to suck kneecaps. His legacy really is its own mountain, and many men have tried to scale that summit, only to find that living up to the legend is as tall a task as jumping over the ocean. Or some other simile or metaphor, whatever. I mean, I've read enough of the man's story to begin questioning my own accomplishments, or lack thereof. It's a weird sort of existential crisis that hits you when you realize the insane capacity for an individual in previous generations to shape his world. And yet, that belies the fact that we each have that same capacity. If you want to achieve an ideal, no matter how lofty the aspirations to which you're aspiring, there's no reason in the world not to try. At worst, you'll fail and choose a different path, at peace in knowing that you at least gave it a shot. And at best, you could do what Iacocca did, climbing your way up the ladder and unhooking that money-in-the-bank briefcase at the apex of your ambitions. That's how I feel when I read about Lee Iacocca. It makes me feel like I can do more. Be more. It's not just about aspiration, it's about actualization. And other corny motivational lines you'd probably see on a poster with a cat hanging off a branch. There may be others who affect the auto industry in such an indelible way that their actions split time into before and after categories. And Lord knows there are already countless people who can inspire, enrich, and embolden. But there will only ever be one Lee Iacocca. And while some may view that as a bad thing, I think it's pretty great we even got the one. Congratulations to everyone who made it to the end with me. Uh, this is the obviously the longest RCR stories yet, and it's because usually when I talk about Chrysler like I did with the merger, the story kind of gets away from me, so I spent the better part of a month writing this. But it's also because I have a great amount of respect for Lee Iacocca and his story, and I wanted to do some measure of justice to it. But uh, anyway, I really do hope you guys enjoyed this, and I'm getting to work on my next uh, one of these, and it's going to be about a pretty popular British uh, institution. And it's probably not the one that you're expecting, but that's all I'll say about it for now. But needless to say, this was a lot of work, but I'm hoping that it pays off in just people enjoying it. And I know these little things at the end kind of get a bit repetitive in that I'm just hoping that people enjoy these things. But it really is, you know, yes, I'm doing it for work, but it's also something that I want people to get something out of, whether it's, you know, knowledge and or enjoyment, anything, you know, because I love doing this and I love having this as my job. 
And, you know, I love reading comments and I love sort of having this platform to dig into automotive stories that I really do love and that I love researching and I love writing about and I love talking about. So anyway, I'll catch you on the next RCR stories and on the next uh, weekly review and anything else that we put out. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week.